Today, in this talk, I will talk about the practice of metta meditation in the context of the Buddha's teaching. And then, in the second part, I'm going to talk about the near and far enemies of metta. The Buddha's teaching is all about to become free, to become liberated, to become free from false views or incorrect ideas, or to become liberated from all that which makes us unhappy and creates suffering. And this path to this liberating freedom is clearly outlined by the Buddha. As a guiding principle, we have the so-called Noble Eightfold Path. And this Eightfold Path is a comprehensive teaching which includes all aspects of our life. This Eightfold Path covers the aspect of virtue. And virtue deals with the way we live our life. It deals with our actions of body, with our speech, and how we earn our livelihood. The baseline is not to hurt and harm others and ourselves by actions of body and speech. Then the second aspect of the Noble Eightfold Path covers the aspect of training the heart and mind. So it says how we can train our heart and mind in order to calm the mind and to develop mindfulness. And the third aspect of this Eightfold Path deals with wisdom, developing wisdom and understanding. So basically, it aims at getting an understanding that is in accordance with reality. Or in other words, we can say, it aims at realizing or abandoning our false view and incorrect ideas. Or else we can condense the Buddha's teaching to two principles, one being wisdom and understanding, and the other principle being compassion and kindness. And this principle of kindness and compassion is embedded in the aspect of virtue. So for example, for a virtuous life, we have the precepts. For example, these nine precepts. We have also a basic set of five precepts for lay people for the day-to-day -day life. And the explicit statement in these precepts is not to hurt or harm others by our actions of body and speech. But the implicit meaning of these precepts is to be kind and to be compassionate to others and to ourselves as well. The principle of wisdom and understanding is delineated by right view and right intention. These are the first two factors of the Eightfold Path. And this Eightfold Path is also called the Middle Path, meaning in the middle of extreme views and opinions. 
The following simile illustrates these two principles very nicely. A lamp produces simultaneously light and warmth. And so likewise, the middle path, the Eightfold Path, is illuminated by wisdom and nourished by kindness and compassion. So light stands for the light of wisdom. And warmth, this stands for compassion and kindness. Compassion and kindness, or we can also call it metta, love, these are the dimensions of the heart, dimensions of the affective um, side of the mind. That's why I often use the two words in combination, the heart and the mind, to include both aspects of the mind, the more intellectual, analytical part of the mind, but also the more um, what we would call emotional part of the mind. Often, when I uh, was listening to Tibetan Buddhist teachers presenting the teaching, I heard them use the simile of the bird. A bird needs two wings to fly. With only one wing, a bird cannot fly. And likewise, what is needed to become liberated and free are the wing of wisdom and the wing of love and compassion. So this means awakening or to become fully liberated needs both these dimensions of wisdom and love and compassion. Wisdom without love and compassion would be limited and likewise Love and compassion without wisdom would be limited. In the dimension of wisdom, we try to see things as they really are. So there, on this level, we try to see reality, understand reality on an absolute level. So then we come to understand, for example, the cause and relation, cause and effect relationship of all processes happening in our body and mind. And we come to understand that these processes are impersonal processes. They are constantly arising and passing away. And all these processes are empty of an inherently existing self or soul. But this is only one dimension of our being in the world. We live in a world that is inhabited by living beings, by other human beings, by animals, and whatever unseen living beings there are. So if only the dimension of wisdom and understanding were to be developed, then there would be a high risk of becoming cold-hearted or distant. And this is why this other dimension of kindness, love, and compassion is equally important. Because on a relative level, on a conventional level, 
we have relationships with other people, with animals. We live together with them, we work together, we eat together, we shop together, we travel, travel with others, we share our joys, and we share our sorrow. So all these forms, all these relationships need a form of behavior that recognizes them as living beings. And namely, as living beings who want to be happy, living beings who do not want any form of suffering or pain. And so acknowledging this, we should behave in a way in the world that does not hurt or harm any other being. Then on the other side, if we would only develop kindness, compassion, unconditional or kind kindness, compassion, then it could easily result in actions that are not really helpful or beneficial, because when the aspect of wisdom is lacking, because then we may not be aware that our compassion is tainted by aversion, for example. This happened many years back when I stayed at the meditation center outside of Yangon, the Chamie Yeta in Mobi, about 30 kilometers north of Yangon. It has uh, lots of trees there. And one day from the porch of my kuti, I saw a snake not far from the kuti. And I love snakes, so I was very interested and looked at the snake. And I saw that it very slowly moved forward. And then I looked, and about two meters away from the snake, I saw a frog. And I watched the snake moving slowly, slowly, slowly. And when it was quite near to the frog, it made a leap and caught the frog. And of course, I immediately um, had compassion for the frog, which was going to be eaten by the snake. And so I took a long stick and I tried to, to free the frog from the mouth of the snake. And my attention was all directed towards the frog of saving its life. But then, after some time, I realized there was aversion, aversion towards the snake. So then, oh, I thought there was this pure compassion just to save the frog. But there was aversion towards another sentient being. So love and compassion must always be informed by wisdom to ensure that they are not tainted with either attachment or craving or aversion and hatred. And to really make sure that the outcome of our behavior is beneficial and helpful. If the wisdom aspect is missing, then we can easily fall prey to the so-called near and far enemies. So in the Visuddhimagga, this commentary, we find an explanation of the near and far enemies of the four divine abidings, or the four Brahma-viharas. 
And for all of these four Brahma Viharas, you know them, Metta, Karuna, Mudita, and Upeka. So for all of these four Brahma Viharas, the near and far enemies are listed and explained. In the context of this Metta meditation retreat, I'm only going to speak about the near and far enemies of Metta, of loving-kindness. So the near enemy of Metta is craving, attachment, or lust. And the far enemy of Metta is hatred, aversion, ill will, which means all forms of dosa. The near enemy of metta, namely attachment, craving, lust, is more difficult to detect than the far enemy of metta, that is hatred, aversion, ill will. Attachment, craving, or lust, they are called the near enemy of metta because attachment, lust, uh, craving can easily disguise as metta, as love, as kindness. Worldly love is often accompanied by attachment, although people think that they genuinely love the other person. But we must always bear in mind that the meta-love is an unconditional love. It is this kind of love that does not ask for any condition to be like this or that. Meta-love does not differentiate between people, makes no distinction between a beloved person and an enemy. Metta, metta-love, does not set up any boundaries. That is why metta and the other three Brahma-viharas are also called boundless states. Our capacity to love, to be kind, must be truly boundless and limitless. This is also mentioned in the Metta Sutta, the Buddha's discourse on loving kindness. There it says, So with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings. In order to become free or liberated, we must weaken and finally eliminate all those mental states and emotions that create bondage and suffering. We know from our vipassana meditation practice, or we know from our theoretical understanding of the Buddha's teaching, that all forms of attachment, craving, lust, cause suffering. They do not lead to happiness and peace. This means as long as attachment or lust is present, we will continue to suffer. We will not become truly happy and peaceful. An Indian sage, his name is Swami Rama. He passed away about uh, 20 years ago. He put it like this. He said, attachment creates bondage, while love, the meaning of metta-love, 
bestows freedom. Often, people are not aware that their metta towards a dear person is tainted by attachment. They think that it is pure metta. However, when this dear person falls sick, or even if this person dies, then often worry and grief arises. And this shows that the metta was not pure, that it was tainted by attachment, that it was not this unconditional love, which metta is. Like every now and again, meditators tell me in the interview that their metta towards a dear person is not as pure as they thought it was. They were under the impression that their relationship was one of pure metta. But then, through the practice of metta meditation, they discovered that um, sadness was arising when they were thinking of a problem this person had, for example, at work. So when we say that metta needs to be free from all forms of attachment, uh, it does not mean that this becomes a cold and distant relationship with the person. It also doesn't mean that we need to become indifferent in regard to the other person. That's far from it. A non-attached or a detached metta love is actually full of warmth and care. It's full of kindness. It's full of unconditional love. Again, Swami Rama, he said, when teachers speak of non-attachment, they are not teaching indifference but they are teaching how to genuinely and selflessly love others. Non-attachment, properly understood, means love. Non-attachment and love are one and the same. Non-attachment gives freedom, but attachment brings bondage. I would say that metta is a radical way of living our life. It's a radical way of relating to other people, relating to other living beings, and most importantly, to relating to ourselves. Can we imagine such a way of life Can we imagine that relating to ourselves and others with metalove is actually possible? Well, yes, it is possible. The more we try to be kind and friendly, the more we experience for ourselves the positive outcome. And this in turn gives us the incentive to even try more, to be even kind if the other person is nasty to us. The Dalai Lama is convinced that it is possible and he really embodies this unconditional metalove. At one time, He had said, 
practice kindness whenever it is possible. It is always possible. So this, I would say, is a radical approach to life. It's also very pragmatic and it's simple. It's a radically uncompromising uh, way, and especially to people we do not like, especially to people we hate or to our enemies. To maintain a benevolent attitude to all beings at all times. This is an outlook of life that runs against mainstream, and it also runs against our deeply ingrained habits. Then the far enemy of metta is hatred, aversion, ill will, that is, all forms of dosa. And these mental states or emotions are easy to detect because often they are quite obvious because they also strongly manifest in our body, physical sensations. Basically, we all know how destructive aversion and hatred are. And still, we fall into these unwholesome reactions time and again. And then we regret. It's the force of habit that keeps us imprisoned in these aversive reactions. So to get out of this prison, the practice of metta meditation can be immensely helpful. So by doing this practice, the way we are doing this practice here, we decondition our old habitual thought patterns. And at the same time, we strengthen new, beneficial, uh, wholesome thought patterns. We also can call the practice of metta meditation a reconditioning of our heart and mind. It's a new conditioning of our heart and mind with beneficial and wholesome thought patterns. Here comes a true story that shows that pure metta is always possible, even under the most difficult and trying conditions. The daughter of an American couple who lived in South Africa was brutally murdered. The men who murdered the daughter were caught and then imprisoned. However, the parents pleaded for the amnesty of the group of men who killed their daughter. And they also set up a charitable organization to help the residents of the township where their daughter was murdered. And they even employed the men who had killed their daughter. It's truly amazing what is possible. When dosa is present, aversion, hatred, ill will, then violence is never far. Metta, as the antidote to dosa, is a manifestation of non-violence. Metta never expresses any form of violence, 
neither to others nor to oneself. And as we have said, metta is not only the absence of hatred, ill will, and so on, but metta is actually an active manifestation of kindness, of benevolence, of friendliness, of unconditional love. Protestant minister in Switzerland called love, this kind of meta-love, a treasure of active nonviolence. For me, this active aspect of meta is very important. Meta must be acted out. Meta must be lived. Metta must be embodied with our whole being. Metta is not only a nice mental state that we cultivate during a metta retreat or at home, sitting on the cushion in the morning. Metta is a quality of heart and mind that must be manifested, that must be acted out. Metta must become the base from which all our actions of body and speech spring. And this is a message that we can actually find in all religions, in all spiritual traditions. So be it Buddha, be it Jesus, or Mohammed, or Guru Nanak, the founder of Sikhism. They all stressed the importance of this kind of unconditional love, the importance of metta. So metta is not something Buddhist. It's a universal human quality. You probably all know the Jesus' teaching of love thy neighbor as yourself. So metta is radically uncompromising, not only in its radical attitude of unconditional love, but also in its active manifestation of this unconditional love. Metta is a call to take a stand and act. So this radical attitude of metta love is basically expected from all that follow, from, uh, from all who follow a religious teaching. For the Buddha was adamant when he said that we should give up all forms of dosa, all forms of hatred, violence, ill will. In the Dhammapada, That's a collection of teachings of the Buddha, collection of verses. There is this famous verse where it says, Hatred never ceases by hatred. By love alone it will cease. This is an eternal law. Love is not only an essential ingredient of social harmony, but it is also an essential ingredient to make progress on the path to liberation. As I had said at the beginning, both wisdom and love and compassion must be developed. A bird can only fly 
with two wings. An Indian hermit had said, you should do your duty in the world with love, and that alone will contribute significantly to your progress on the path to enlightenment. Or uh, Teresa of Lisieux, a French saint, said basically the same thing. And she was famous for her great love. She had said, what matters in life is not great deeds, but great love. Teresa of Lisieux, she lived and taught a spirituality of attending to everyone and everything with great love. She believed that we should have a childlike focus and be totally present to what is there. Teresa's spirituality was one of doing the ordinary, doing it with extraordinary love. Metta, that is unconditional love, kindness, friendliness, it heals and contributes to peace whereas anger and hatred cause suffering and they leave open wounds. And these open wounds are so difficult to heal, after, often they fester for a long, long time. And hatred creates more hatred. And in this way, an endless cycle of hostile, and cruel actions takes place. We see this dynamic also with this ethnic group of the Rohingyas living in the very north of Burma at near the border to Bangladesh. You may have heard that last year Many thousands of them fled to Bangladesh, where they still live in huge refugee camps under very difficult uh, circumstances. I don't want to go into this topic uh, right now, but uh, the last year I read uh, a pledge or an article by a Burmese a Catholic cardinal. He sent out this appeal to everyone, saying, please heal, do not wound. Let us work together to end violence and terror in our country. And let's build a Myanmar where every man, woman, and child of every race and religion is recognized both as our fellow citizen and as our brother and sister in humanity. Peace with justice is possible. Let us continue the pilgrimage to peace, not to return to war. So the meta-attitude of this Burmese Catholic cardinal is clear and unmistaken. With an open heart, he embraces everybody of every race and every religion. There is no discrimination. There is no exclusion. 
I would say the way to peace is made up by steps of metta. Metta is a pilgrimage to peace, to peace within, peace within ourselves, and peace without, like peace out in the world. A summary in regard to the near and far enemy of metta. The far enemy of metta is easier to recognize because anger, aversion, ill will are more easily detected in ourselves. Then the near enemy of metta is often not recognized because attachment or lust can often disguise as friendliness and love. But in both cases, the outcome is suffering, worry, disappointment, disappointment, frustration, or grief. So one way to judge if our metta is pure and genuine is to notice if there is any disappointment, worry, or frustration. And if the answer is yes, then we can conclude it is not pure metta. Only if the answer is no, then we know that our metta is authentic and pure. A heart full of metta is happy and peaceful. It's calm and shining. Or another way to judge whether or not our metta is pure is to make sure that there is not the slightest intention to hurt or harm, neither physically nor hurting emotionally. As we know, metta is the heartfelt wish for the welfare and happiness of all beings. Our capacity to embrace all living beings with the same benevolent and loving attitude must be really strong and limitless. Then metta becomes powerful and it can have far-reaching effects. Here is the story of a hermit who lived at the foot of the Himalayas and he found a small cave where he went inside to take some rest. But then he discovered that there were three little, little tiger cubs in the cave. And so this hermit described the situation like this. For a few minutes, I lay there petting them, the little tiger babies. Then when I sat up, there was the mother standing at the entrance to the cave. First, I feared that she would rush in and attack me. But then a strong feeling came from within. I had the thought, I have no intention to hurt these tiger babies. If she leaves the entrance of the cave, I will go out. So then I picked up my blanket and pot of water. The mother tiger backed off from the entrance and I went out. When I had gone about 15 yards from the entrance, the mother tiger calmly went in to join her cubs. As Sayadaw has mentioned yesterday, 
also animals have metta. Also animals can feel uh, our metta. They know whether a person is full of metta or whether a person is full of anger or having cruel thoughts. In our practice of metta meditation, we need to be vigilant that we do not fall prey to the near and far enemies. And when we do fall prey to the near and far enemy, we simply acknowledge it and then return to the cultivation of loving-kindness. Because in the context of metta-meditation, there is no need to attend to the near and far enemy. That is, there is no need to be mindful of attachment or anger. There is no need to be mindfully aware of lust or in ill will. This is the domain of vipassana meditation. With the practice of metta meditation, we want to strengthen the quality of metta, of kindness and benevolence. And we do it by repeatedly cultivating this loving attitude. And by strengthening the metta aspect, its opposite will become weaker. This means that the habitual reactions of anger, aversion, or ill will will become weakened. With strong metta, anger, aversion will arise less frequently, or when they do appear, they will not be as strong as before, or anger, aversion may not last long, as long as they had before. And this is happening due to the reconditioning of the heart and mind. In modern psychology, they call this construct, sorry, call it cognitive restructuring. And this cognitive restructuring is greatly needed in today's world. Well, I assume that during the time of the Buddha or Jesus, it was also very much needed. Otherwise, these great sages would not have emphasized the importance of metta or love uh, to the extent they did. But unfortunately, loving-kindness metta is covered by a dozen of veils, and the work is to unveil, to uncover metta, to uncover this unconditional love. As I had said before, this is something we must do, we must engage in this practice, we must put it into practice. Something we must learn. At school, I learned many things, also many unimportant, even futile things. So for example, I never needed to calculate a sinus curve in order to get dressed, or to know the birth date of Mozart did not help me very much when dealing with an attack of greed. An old Sufi woman, she was uh, 93 years old, living near Accra in India, she said, the people of the world have learned how to fill up 
earthen bowls with grains and coins. But no one knows how to fill the ball of the heart. So filling the balls with grains and coins. Grains stands for any kind of food and coins, money, material wealth. The ball of the heart, that's the meta love. Nowadays, people know how to flood the world with foodstuff and material things. People know how to make money. They know how to make love. But not many people know how to fill the ball of the heart with meta-love, with kindness. And this is why it is so heartening to see all of you here, to know that all of you are eager to cultivate metta, to cultivate kindness, friendliness, this benevolent attitude, that you're eager to learn how to fill the ball of your heart. And with your practice, you will definitely make a difference in the world. Your metta practice will benefit yourself by becoming more open-hearted and loving towards yourself. And your metta will also greatly benefit the world around you. That is, all the people and all the living beings you meet and you come into contact. Like ripples in a pond, your kindness and caring attitude will make a difference in people's life and improve the condition of many living beings. Thank you very much for your kind attention. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.